1 Corinthians chapter 3. It just felt like we were in the king's courts. Amen. Worshiping him. Telling him how worthy he is. He is amazing. That's just a foretaste of what we will experience in heaven one day. As a people from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. We'll sing to this majestic God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 through 23. Uh, today's topic is, or, or title is, the, the Smart Church. The Smart Church. And what you hold in your hand is the very Word of God. It is the breath of God. It is God-breathed. This is not a self-help book. This is not neat suggestions. This is God's word. It is sufficient unto all godliness. It is inerrant, meaning that there is no errors or contradictions. It is perfect. Let's read. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Uh, let's pray. Gracious Father God, what a, an awesome opportunity to come before your presence as your people and to experience the preaching of your, your word. Father, you have taken the, the foolish things of this world and you use it to confound the wise. For while the world says that preaching is, is foolish, uh, we believe, Lord, that it is uh, by faith and by hearing the word of God that we grow by faith. So I pray that you will bless your word, bless the preaching of it, Lord. Uh, give me clarity, allow me to preach to the heart. Lord, I also pray for the believers that's in the Middle East right now, for those who are in Pakistan and Egypt and Syria who have been under immense persecution from Muslims. Father, I pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ that some 20 to 50 people, Christians, are being slaughtered daily. That you would give them the perseverance that they need, Father God. And that your Holy Spirit would equip them, Lord, to be able to, to suffer well, O oh God. And to be able to love you in spite of losing loved ones, O oh God. And may we be reminded, Lord, that standing for truth and standing for the gospel comes with a cost. And that you are more than worth the cost, O oh God. And you've proved that to us by the way that you've loved us. I pray for the heart that is eroded and crusted, 
the heart, Father God, that has been committed to you, Lord, but who has been wandering and who is slothful in your things. I pray, Father God, that your Holy Spirit, through the preaching of God's word, would break through and wash that heart, that, that we, Lord, would leave as your people, saying, creating me a clean heart and renewing me the right spirit, O oh God, that you would break us and give us a heart of contrite, O oh God, a heart that desires you more than anything in this world, Lord. And though we may be few in number here today, Father God, we know that you don't need a lot to start a revival, O oh God, and to start a revolution. For you took 12 men, O oh God, and you turned this world upside down. So bless your people this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm not sure if you've heard about the new mega church that is growing faster than any other church in the world. But here's the catch. The church is not a Christian church. It is a church for atheists. And the church's motto is live better, help often, and wander more. They boast about being an atheist church that just comes together to have a foot-stomping good time. On Sunday mornings, their worship service looks a lot like ours. They meet in London. They have a speaker that comes up, and this speaker preaches, but he preaches about how great humanity is and how there's no God and we don't need a God. They preach about science and the latest discoveries. And their, their point is to show that human beings uh, are the only ones who are, 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 are smart enough to be in control of this world and that God is a myth. They come together and they celebrate, just like we just sung songs of praise and worship. They come together and they sing. They often sing mo the more uh, known, well-known songs and, and classic hits, but they, they are worshiping humanism preach about philanthropy, they preach about science, they preach about becoming a better person. One of the founders of this movement said that the church model has worked really well for a couple of thousand years, and what we're trying to do is hold on to the bathwater while throwing baby Jesus out. They like the church. They said, this method of church, coming together once a week and hearing an inspiring message, we like. But Jesus is unnecessary. The movement is spreading. The assembly church is what they call themselves. They have grown immensely from 400 people to when they kicked off to thousands of people. In fact, by the end of the year, they estimate that they would have planted a, a new church in 22 major cities throughout the world, in England, Ireland, Scotland, Canada, the United States, and Australia. And as I was researching about this church and, and reading some shocking statements that members of the church uh, were saying, uh, two things were obvious. The first is, is that this church openly embraces hedonism. Anything that is pure, anything that uh, is, 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 is taught as a, a Christian virtue, uh, they, they, they kind of go against. Their method is seek pleasure. Please yourself. 
Life is short. Enjoy it. But the second thing is they boast in human achievement and human wisdom. They believe that they are a smart church. They're smarter than Christians. And they have it right. They think that they really do have it all together. Now what's sad is, is that this church is very similar to many American Christian churches. A lot of churches won't admit it, but if you go there, experience worship, and even experience the lives of most members, they have capped the bathwater, but thrown Jesus out. Church and the gathering together of God's uh, people is more about sometimes human achievement, human wisdom, whether or not we can leave feeling that we had experienced a great show and received pats on the back that, that make us feel worth. The church at Corinth thought that they were a smart church. They were boasting and living as if they had it all together. And Paul is writing his church to let them know that you're about everything but Jesus. Rather than worshiping the giver, God, you all are worshiping the gifts. Rather than seeking godly wisdom and knowing God's word and believing it and believing in the foolishness of the cross, you all are believing in, in human achievement and human wisdom. And Paul wants to turn the direction of this heart, this church, back to God. Paul wants them to experience the good life. He wants them to be a true, smart church, a, a church that is marked by God's wisdom. Now, what does it mean to be a smart church? What does it mean to be a wise church? Well, it doesn't mean that everyone in the church is accomplished in a specific field of discipline and, and have received great degrees. And it has nothing to do with one's IQ. A smart church is a church that trusts in God's wisdom over human wisdom. A smart church is a church that knows that all human wisdom one day will come under God's judgment. And God isn't calling you and me today to embrace his wisdom and believe that by embracing his wisdom that we can live the good life. And what is the good life? The good life is a life of peace. The good life is a life of joy. The good life is a life where you can stand with confidence every day knowing that the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. The good life is a life where you know that by delighting in God, you know that he will give you the desires of your heart, which is his heart's desires. The good life is a life where your home doesn't look uh, uh, it, like it's in complete chaos. The good life is where you don't have to make a decision just by, by using your own wisdom, but where you can go to God's word and know that he's going to speak to you and provide for you. The good life is a life where you trust him in every area of your life, from your relationships and friendships to your finances, and where you believe that God is working through you and the people that gather together with you each Sunday to make a change. Paul wants the church of Corinth to embrace the good life by embracing Jesus, not the bathwater. So 
if we're going to be a smart church, there's three things um, that we want to embrace that I believe Paul points us to in this text. The first is this. The smart church knows who they are and how committed God is to them. The smart church knows who they are and how committed God is to them. One thing about this atheist church is they, as they interview different members and different leaders, uh, as I, I read uh, on their website and other things, one thing about them is they know their identity. You will never walk into that church and hear them arguing about Christian values and about Jesus. They know their identity. They are accepting that they believe that God does not exist. They know who they are. They know the message that they want to spread. They are on mission. That's why they're planning 22 churches this year alone, because they know who they are. Paul says you have to know who you are, and he shows us who we are in verses 16 through 17. And he also shows not only who we are, but he also shows us how committed God is to us. Look at this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Paul starts with a, a piercing question. And this is something that he does in Corinth. He uses the same formula where asking a question 10 times. And every time he asks this question, he gives the answer. And every time he asks this question, he also uh, uh, begins to go into a discourse in order to, 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 to answer this question in a powerful way. He says, do you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So he asks the question, and then in the next verse, he goes to tell us who we are. He's saying, yes, you are the temple of God. Now, if you look at your Bibles, it says, do you know that you are? In the Greek, that is actually in the plural, and it's that you all are. So Paul is kind of getting country. Y'all, do you not know that y'all are God's temple? So not only are we individually representing God's temple, but collectively as the church, we are God's temple. Paul, a few verses before, talks about how the church is God's building. Now he's getting specific. He's saying, you're not just a building. You are a temple. Now that's not stunning to most of us because we don't understand the theme of being a temple throughout the scripture. But being a temple, man, that is a, that was something. In the Old Testament, Solomon built God a temple took a couple decades to build it for God because the temple was the place where God's spirit dwelled. It was the earthly dwelling place of an omnipresent God. The temple, Herod's temple, took some four decades to build because the temple was the center of, of one's life. The temple was set in the center of the city. The temple was the most pristine building in Jerusalem. He says, that's what you are. But see, the temple was a place where, where God's spirit dwelled. It was, a, it was a place that was called the holies of holies. And that's where God's anointing and his presence would be in a very thick way. 
And the priest, once a year, would be able to go into the Holies of Holies on a day that was called the Day of Atonement. It was a sacred place in the temple that no one could just casually walk into because God's presence dwelt there. And if a priest went in there without having his stuff together, at the wrong time, in a wrong way, he will be dropped dead because that was a sensitive place. In the same way, Paul says, you are God's temple. Just as the temple was the center of Israel, you are in the center. The church is in the center of God's eye. We are the apple of his eye. And you are the place where God's dwell. Do you not know that the church is God's home on earth? The church is God's dwelling place on earth. Each and every one of you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's a sensitive topic. Do you know the difference between a pigeon and a dove? A pigeon will eat what is fed. It's not very sensitive. He's not worried about whose hand is touching the bread, how the bread smells, or how the bread feels. You can find a a pigeon in a, a common place, a dirty place, but not a dove. A dove is very sensitive to what it eats. It has a very sensitive smell, nostrils. It's not just going to eat anything. It's not just going to dwell anywhere. And not only that, but a, a, a dove has a special way that it, it, it moves. It moves with grace and eloquence. In John chapter 1, verse 32, John says, John the Baptist says, I saw the Spirit descend on him, speaking of Jesus, at his baptism like a dove. That same spirit that descended on Jesus in a very graceful way and that empowered him for his earthly ministry has indu- is indwelling us the moment that God regenerates us and gives us a new heart, which means that we have something very precious and very sensitive, someone very precious and sensitive indwelling us, God's spirit. God's spirit is sensitive. It doesn't want to go everywhere. It doesn't want to be in a, around and accept human wisdom. It's not meant to dwell anywhere and to live any way. It's sensitive to sin. So Paul says in the book of Ephesians that he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. In other words, do not live in a way that is insensitive to the things of God. Do not embrace sin. Do not give your bodies over to sexual immorality. Be careful what you watch, what you hear, what you say, because inside of you, there is that this Holy Spirit indwelling. You are the holies of holies, so to speak. The holy place where God dwells. It says the smart church knows who they are. They are sensitive to who they are. It's important to know who you are. Especially as the church, it is important to know how committed God is to us. 
Because in God, we have received many blessings. We are peculiar. We are special. We are loved in such a way that our hearts can be satisfied and can be content. While those who do not know Jesus are not and cannot be. It's important that we know who we are in order that we can experience the blessings that come with who we are. My aunt bought a new car, and I was a little boy, and it was a sports car. She's uh, made a, a good living for herself financially, and I'll never forget how sporty this car was, and it was within the first couple weeks that she got it, and as a family, we all went out skating one day, and I, she drove up, and I just was out there, and I was just, wow, look at this car. It is amazing. Auntie, are you going to save that car for me for when I get older? Sure, honey. It has your name on it. We go in and we're skating and she's just jamming. I couldn't really skate, but I just see her jamming. And all of a sudden, she slipped and fell. And when she slipped and fell, she hit her head. And we brought her off and we called the ambulance and she was unconscious. They got her conscience, conscious and she could not remember one thing. Everyone was asking, where's your car keys? Car keys? What's your name? Name. She could not remember who she was. So sitting outside was this brand new, shiny, beautiful car. And because her memory was gone, she couldn't enjoy it. By God's grace, after a couple hours, she began to get it back. But many of you are settling for a subpar life because you don't know who you've been made to be in Jesus. And Paul is saying, do you not know, do you not remember that you are the temple of God? God. That is, the, that is the greatest compliment. That is the greatest to have a living God indwelling you in spite of you by grace. And as a church, we forget this and we become disunified and we become unfocused and we chase after pintos instead of sports cars spiritually. And we settle for whatever the world wants to give us. And we forget that the treasures that we have in Christ as a result of the Holy Spirit, and we live these defeated, dark, twisted, human lives. That's what Paul says earlier in chapter 3. He says, uh, you are not merely human. You're being human. We don't have to settle for merely human lives when we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Supernatural power that causes us to be different. God is committed to his temple. Look at what God says in verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, set apart, made to be different, made to stand out, and you are that temple. So Paul says, if anyone destroys God's temple, now that begs the question, because we know that Jesus said, upon this rock I build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But here Paul says, if anyone destroys this church, is Paul saying that the church can be destroyed? He said, in a way, yes and no. A local church can be destroyed because the members are devouring each other. But the universal church, the universal church can never be destroyed. 
The universal movement can never be destroyed. Churches split and shut down all the time because of the foolishness of its members and because of the foolishness of his pastors. Remember, Paul is addressing this not only to the church at Corinth, but he's addressing the leaders there in Corinth, and he's telling the leaders, hey, you are building on another foundation other than Jesus. You are building on a way that is pointing to human achievement rather than God's gracious achievement through Jesus Christ. You are building your own kingdom rather than God's kingdom, and you are bringing straw, wood, and hay to God rather than gold and precious elements. The church can be destroyed, so to speak. Local church can be dismantled because of the foolishness of its members. And Paul is saying, God's people shouldn't be foolish. We should see who he's been called. But look how God deals with the person who destroys the church. And I believe that this is talking about the day of judgment. It's if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God takes his church serious. He's saying if anyone is, has, has been a part of the church or, or been a member of the church, you can be a member of the church and not be a part of the church. Your name can be on the roll of a church. You can come to church week in and week out and not be a part of the church. To be a part of the church means that you've been made alive in Christ. To be a member of the church means that you've done a good job faking everybody out about loving Jesus and you come to church each week. But many people are members of churches and they destroy the church. The church is also often destroyed from the inside by gossip, by jealousy and strife. Paul says that one day you will stand before the judgment seat of God and you will be destroyed. But what does that say about God? That says that God is passionate about his people. That says that God is passionate about his temple, like a building owner who is passionate about his building. And when someone comes and commits arsony or, or, or damages it, he goes out and he looks for them in order that justice will be served. God will judge those who, who did not steward the church well. We must be smart by knowing who we are and by seeing how committed. How does that make you feel that God is that committed to Forest Baptist Church? How does that make you feel that you are part of something that God is that committed about? God loves the church too much to say, I'm going to let anyone who, who tears the church apart live without a fear of repercussion. You're special. And as believers in Christ, we want to accept God's grace in our life. And we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But as God's temple, we want to make sure that we are not taking advantage of God's grace by continuing in sin. We want to search our own hearts and our own life and say, God, how does your temple look? Is it clean? Jesus is zealous over the temple. He went into the temple and he cleaned it of robbers and thieves. And each of our hearts have some robbers and some thieves, some, some things that we're holding on to, some things that keep us distracted from true worship. And I want you to hear Jesus saying, I love you too much to allow you to be distracted. You are the temple of God. You are a place of prayer. A temple of worship. A place where the world should be able to come to and know Jesus. 
second. The smart church knows they need God's wisdom and humility. The smart church knows that they need God's wisdom and humility. Look at what Paul says in verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So the smart church knows that they need God's wisdom and humility. Notice what he says. He says, let no one deceive himself. Paul is talking to these leaders who are trying to build their own kingdom, and they are living in sin by not pointing people to the gospel, but pointing people to themselves and human wisdom. And he's saying, you are deceiving yourself. Sin is self-deception. Sin is self-deception. Sin blinds us to God's ways and tells us that the things that we are doing are justified before God. And Paul is saying, don't deceive yourself. We can deceive ourselves by being foolish. That's what this church was doing. That's what he's warning them. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in his age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Human wisdom, and what we see with this atheist church, they believe that, that human wisdom and human accomplishment is the way to go. Selfish pursuits is the way to go. They believe that building their own kingdom and becoming famous and, and being smarter than the next person is the way to go. And what does God call them? He calls them morons. That word fool in Greek is the word uh, that we get for moronic or moron. God is looking in heaven for everyone who's trying to build their life for their own advantage. Rather than building their life on Jesus for his advantage, he looks at them as fools. The psalm says, a fool says that, they, they, that, that, that there is no God. And these people who are atheists, they are fools. The person who says that there are no gods, the Bible says that there are fools. The person who's here today who doesn't really believe in the Bible and believe in God, and you just think that church is just a, a cool thing and, and something that's necessary, but it really isn't a way to God, you are being foolish. Salvation is about humbling ourselves. In order to be saved, one has to humble himself and accept God's wisdom. In fact, we say, God, I've been stupid all of my life. I've been an idiot all of my life. All of my life, I thought I was grown. All of my life, I thought I was in control. All of my life, I thought that I could do what I wanted to do and everything was going to work out great. But God, I've seen your glory and I've seen your son and I, I admit that I am stupid without you. That's offensive to some of you. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18. Verse number three says, and, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Whoever humbles himself like, like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of God is the greatest in the kingdom of God. God calls us to be vulnerable and to be dependent on him. And when the church has people who are not vulnerable and dependent upon him, division occurs. 
the church of Corinth was so divided because people, because the members of the church were not recognizing who they were and how committed God was to them. And they were walking in selfish pride. Pride is the mother of all sin. When we sin against God, we're saying that we know better than God and that God doesn't satisfy. In order to become a Christian, we have to empty empty ourselves, become like a child, but we have to stay like a child. Look at what the next verse says in Matthew 18, verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's deep. It says that the person who causes another Christian, one who has a simple faith in God, to stumble into sin will be dealt with by God. Jesus uses hyperbola here. He uses an an intense scenario and situation and picture in order to make his point. He says, it's better that a rock, a big millstone, be thrown around your neck, fastened around your neck, and you thrown in the sea. And again, what is he doing? He's showing that he's committed to his people. He's committed to his church being set aside as pure and holy. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in his age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. In order to become uh, wise, you have to become a fool. It's a great paradox of the kingdom of God. In order to become wise, you have to believe in the foolishness of the cross. You have to believe that God saved through a man who who was fully man and fully God. You have to believe that that old rugged cross washes away your sin. You have to believe that 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 Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, that with that same power, God can raise you from any situation. That's foolishness to the world. Verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. He catches the wise in their craftiness. Here Paul quotes Job. Job's friend Eliphaz is talking, and you know Job is a, 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 pers- a character, a person in the Bible, has a book in the Bible, he was suffering immensely, God stripped him, took everything away from him. Now Job's friends are around him and they're trying to give him counsel, they think it's godly counsel, and they're basically saying the reason why you're in the situation you're in is because you've sinned against God, because you're not an upright man. So they thought that they knew God, but really what they were doing, they were ministering out of human wisdom. God's ways are not like our ways, and his thoughts are not like our thoughts. They were playing the role of judge. So Eliphaz says these words to Job. He catches the wise of their craftiness. But Paul is using this because that is a true statement, but he's putting it in a true context. Many people think that they're crafty. And they think that they're going to outsmart God. But that's not how it works. And in fact, many of us in times in our lives as Christians, we think that we're outsmarting God. Because we think that we're outsmarting God's people. Our lives are just broken and falling apart. 
and we're in sin and doing things that we're not supposed to be doing. But we think that we can embrace that sin and be crafty and still be a, a, a holy temple or appear as a holy temple. There's a lot of people who thought they were crafty in the Bible and it never ended well. God is calling us to humble ourselves as God's people. Say, God, I'm foolish. I believe that your way is the right way, but a lot of times what we do is we hold on to our own way of living and thinking. We do. We're like, this is mine. <laughs> this is my life. This is my, I know what the Bible says, but God is love and he's going to forgive me. And one day I'm going to wear a crown. Human wisdom and craftiness never works out good in the Bible. Ask Adam and Eve. Ask Cain. Ask Samson. Ask David. Ask Judas. While God's grace covers a multitude of sin, and that's God's people, when we're foolish, we can come back to him and we can repent as his holy temple. And he embraces us, but we have to admit that we are foolish and that he is wise. We cannot outmaneuver God. How can you outmaneuver someone who is omni? What David said in Psalm 139, he's like, yo, wherever I go, you are. Because I can go to Shoal, I can go to death, and there you are. How can you outmaneuver God? You're not crafty enough. Your, your mind is too tiny, it's too, too nitrous, it's too miniature. Your greatest thought to God is an insult if you try to compare it to his most foolish thought. Anthropomorphic term, there's no foolishness in God. How can you outmaneuver someone who's omnipresent? How can I outmaneuver someone who's omnipresent? You may outmaneuver the church. The church may think that you have it all together on Sunday and you're a person of pristine, but God sees you in a strip club. God sees us the way that we treat our siblings. God sees us when we're not honoring our mother and father. God sees us when we're Gossiping and being two-faced. Hello. Hello, it's raining outside. Hurry up. It's a good day to take a nap. Y'all trying to outmaneuver God. God's like, nope. I'm going to make him say what he wrote down. No, I'm just joking. But really, we want to accept that God has made us to be distinct and different. We want to accept that God loves us and he is so committed to us that he doesn't want us settling for the food of pigeons. We want to accept that we are not wise enough, but that he is. And when we submit to his wisdom, that though we may suffer and though things may not go the way we want them to, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. What, 
What a great blessing to know as his people that when something goes wrong in his temple, that God, because he's the owner of the building, he's going to work it out for our good. He's like, yo, you've got insurance. Not just insurance, you've got assurance. Someone needs to humble their heart and stop being crafty. And it's hard. We can't do it in our own strength. We're not smart enough to do it in our own strength. But the third point is going to help us. The smart church knows they have everything they need. The smart church knows that in God, they have everything they need. Paul is talking to this church. He's saying, leaders, straighten up. Build with gold, silver, precious stones. Know that you are the temple of God and so is God's people. Humble yourself before God. And find assurance in the fact that the wise church, the smart church, knows that they have everything they need in God. Look at this last section. Verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. So what is, what is Paul saying here? What is Paul doing? We know that boasting was a huge problem in church. People just had big egos and was constantly bragging. And in Corinth, that was popular as a metropolitan area. In that time, in that civilization, self-promotion was accepted and expected. The church is starting to be that way, where everyone's just kind of promoting themselves. And Paul's like, let's hit the brakes. You're promoting yourselves. You're promoting the leaders you like. I want you to, I want you to know something. All things are yours. What does he mean by all things are yours? He's like, Stop trying to find your identity and all this stuff and know that in God you have received rich blessings. Rest in God's work and rest in God's gifts without self-promotion. He says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, what is he saying there? He's saying that each of the pastors that I gave to you as a church, I gave them as a gift. They are your servants. They are your servants. That's my gift to you. It's foolish for you to try to divide the church because you like one better than the other. He's like, relax. They're all yours. <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to side with one person over another. Relax. They all are bringing you things that's going to help you to grow. He goes on, and he says, or the world. That's deep. A lot of times we get caught up in the things of this world, and we get caught up, we want to reign, we want to be king. God is reminding the church that one day you will reign. In the next chapter, he says that. He says, you guys are living like you're already reigning. I wish you would have told me. It's like, be humble. One day you will reign. One day, your needs will be met. One day, you will walk on streets paved with gold, and you will enter into a city that has 12 ways to enter. 
and you will be in a city where the S-U-N doesn't have to shine because the S-O-N does shine. Or life. Or death. Or the present and the future. He's saying all these things are yours. You have eternal life. Death is not an issue anymore. God has taken a sting out of death. He said, why are you walking around being divisive and being broken and acting like you don't have victory? Everything you need is yours. Or the future. Or the present. All things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying God has hooked you up. Stop living a life of discontentment. Stop living a life where you're settling for being less than. Stop living a life of divisiveness and jealousy and strife and selfishness and open your eyes to what God has done for you. Open your eyes to the body of Christ that he's allowed you to be a part of. Open your eyes to the gifts that he's given this body, to the fact that you're a part of a new family that does things differently. Open your eyes to the fact that God has given you what you need most, which is Jesus. That you are his, you are in his hand, and no one or nothing can pluck you out of his hand. Open your eyes to the fact that death no longer is your enemy. That to live is Christ and to die is gain. Just open your life to you being accepted and embraced by God. And live out of that. That's a smart church. A smart church is one who is able to pursue contentment because it knows that our deepest needs have already been set, been met. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. A smart church understands that God is shepherding, God is leading, that God gives a peace that passeth all understanding, that God loves us with a perfect love, enough to allow his son to die in your place. A smart church understands that the wisdom of this world and, and those who seem to be prospering, Psalm 37, will one day be cut off like the grass. That God is going to come with a spiritual lawnmower and stop everything. But us, we will prosper for all eternity. A smart church doesn't have to chuck and, chuck and drive for positions and to be seen. Because the person who matters most sees you and loves you and accepts you as you are. And loves you enough to put godly people around you to help you to grow in Christ. That atheist church seems to be doing well, seems to be doing smart, but I would hate to be a part of it. Because that church does not have the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine how much jealousy? I mean, we're Christians and sometimes we act a fool. How much position swapping is going to be? We gossip and we have the Holy Spirit and we hear the word weekly. Can you imagine how much gossip is going to be a part of that? I'm so glad that I'm a part of the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray, Father God, that you would help us as your people to know who we are, to know how much you love us, 
to humble ourselves and to submit to your leadership and your wisdom, God. To praise you, Father God, because all are ours. Everything we need is ours. It's in you. Everything we need to live a godly life, 2 Peter chapter 1, 3 and 4 says, has already been given us. Help us, Father God, to embrace your wisdom by running to your word, running to prayer, by believing, Father God, that you can give us an answer to everything we need. Help us to shake off slothfulness and to shake off this idea that everyone in the world has it better and they're free. Help us to see that they're not free, that they're in bondage. Help us to see your love and your forgiveness and your grace, that you're married to the backslider. Thank you, Father God. In Jesus' name, amen.